If someone asked you, what does it mean to be a Christian? I wonder what your answer would be. If they came to you and said, I hear that you're a Christian. What is a Christian? How would you answer that? You might think to yourself, or you might say, well, well I would say that a Christian is a person who believes certain things and refuses to believe other things. Maybe you would be more specific, but maybe that's how you think of Christianity. Or maybe to you, a Christian is a person who attends certain kinds of meetings on certain days. Or maybe to you, a Christian is a person who believes that their sins have been forgiven. And that's how you would describe or define a Christian. Maybe you would say... A Christian is a person who follows or has decided to follow the moral teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. Maybe that's how you would explain it. Or maybe you would say that a Christian is a person who has decided to use the Bible as the guide for how they will order the affairs of their home and their life. Or maybe to you a Christian is a person who would say, I know that I'm going to heaven while others will spend eternity in hell. That's a Christian. Someone who's not going to hell, they're going to heaven. That's a Christian. Or maybe to you, a Christian is a person who feels emotionally drawn to certain spiritual aspects of the teachings of the Bible. Many in our world today, they would say, well, I'm just a spiritual person. And so the, the, the spiritual things about Christianity, those, those appeal to me, and I'm, I'm not Jewish, and I'm not a Muslim, I'm, I must be a Christian. Maybe that's what you would say, a Christian is a person who is drawn to some spiritual aspects of the Bible's teaching. What is a Christian? Again, somebody comes up to you on the street. They say, I saw your, I saw your Facebook post. You're a Christian, right? Well, yeah, I'm a Christian. What is a Christian? How would you answer that question? What is a Christian? I submit to you that while all of those things that I just named are true in some sense... They are not in themselves the essence of what it means to be a Christian. They are actually just the fruits of what it actually means to be a Christian. There's a, a deeper and more fundamental reality that results in believing certain things and not others. Attending certain meetings on certain days. The forgiveness of sins. Following the teachings of Christ. Using the scriptures as a guide for your conduct. Uh, having the, the, the eternal hope of heaven rather than the eternal fear of torment and hell or, or being emotionally or affectionately drawn to the teachings of Scripture, those are all the results of something much deeper. To be a Christian is a statement primarily dealing with your relationship to God. When you say, and I, I hope that the broad majority of us, if someone asked you, are you a Christian, I hope that the broad majority of us in this room would say, absolutely, I'm a Christian. And when you say, I'm a Christian, you're making a statement about how you relate to God. Not just the world around you, but how you relate to God. So what is the Christian's relationship to God? How, how is it that we relate to Him? Or what is the nature of our relationship to God? Well, we saw in answer to these types of questions last week that Ultimately or fundamentally, we could say a Christian is a person who relates to God by Jesus Christ. We could state it that simply. I relate to God by 
Christ. Now, obviously, there's more to that. We would, we would want to unpack that further. But at its most basic root, a Christian is a person who relates to God by Christ. To be a Christian is to have Christ. To stand before God and relate to God by way of Christ. Or more specifically, for our purposes today, to be a Christian is to be united to Christ in such a way that when you answer the question, what is the nature of your relationship to God? You would again answer, Christ. But you're united to Christ. It's not just a, it's not just a, a local relation. It's not a surface relation. It's not just a superficial relation. It's not just a relation by believing certain truths. It's a relation of union, union with Christ. Now, coming back to 1 Corinthians, remember what I said last week is Paul in, in verse 30 of 1 Corinthians 1 is taking us up onto what is what we would consider one of the many mountain peaks of Scripture, one of the very highest spots of Scripture. And maybe we haven't noticed that before, but that's really what it is. 1 Corinthians 1.30, I, I used this phrase many times last week from a man named George McDearman. He describes it as, quote, a densely concentrated expression of the greatness, the extent, the fullness, and the sufficiency of the salvation accomplished by Jesus Christ. In other words, in 1 Corinthians 1.30, we have gospel concentrate. We have biblical, theological, doxological truth mixed in a 100 to 1 ratio. What's, what's stated here? is unpacked in pages and pages and pages elsewhere in Scripture. Here it's stated in just a few words. In the original language, even less words than we have in English. Gospel concentrate. And so what, I'm, what we're trying to do is take the time, now that we've come to this mountaintop, to actually observe the view and see how glorious it is that, that we've received such a salvation. So we started with a broad overview of this verse, and I, I pointed out four main things that we see in 1 Corinthians 1.30, God has given us Christ, who is our wisdom. Secondly, God has united us to Christ. Thirdly, through union with Christ, we have salvation. And then salvation, according to this verse, is described as righteousness, sanctification, redemption. And last week we just considered that first point. God has given us a person who is our wisdom. He's given us Christ. While... Fallen man, carnal man is busy. All the world is busy trying to bring about their own long expected purposes for themselves in their life, in their way. God comes along and intervenes and provides His way of bringing about His long expected purposes which we find in most basically Christ. God interjects Christ stops us in our tracks, changes our way of thinking, changes our mode of, of, of movement, changes our direction by giving us Christ, a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the question at this point is, how exactly does that work? How does that work? How is a person the way for God to fulfill his long-expected purposes for us in salvation. How is that true? Now, the reason that that question has to be asked and the reason that it's hard to answer 
is because we typically think of salvation as something that God does to us apart from Himself. You'll hear people say, well, salvation is a gift. It's like a birthday present. He hands it, and if you, if you don't take it, then it's not yours, which is not true. Because if it's yours, it's yours. But we think somebody could mail me a birthday card. Let's say you've got a grandmother. Your birthday's coming. She puts the card in the mail, and in the providence of God, she breathes her last and she dies. Well, you still get the gift, even though you don't have your grandmother. The gift is completely separated from her as a person. And very often we think of salvation that way, that God throws salvation to us and we catch it. And so I've got salvation now and God's over there. We say, thank you, God. And we have salvation separated from God. But that's not true. Salvation in the biblical sense is God giving us a person, Jesus Christ, who is God, the Son, God Himself. The reality is that God has provided salvation to us, not by a mere bestowal of some privileges but from a distance, but by uniting us to His Son. He's given us a person. That person has performed certain deeds. By performing those deeds, that person has won certain privileges, and those privileges become ours. He does the work. We get the privileges. We get the, we get the spoils. How do we get the spoils? Does he, does he throw, them, throw them to us like off of a, a, fro, a float in the parade? He, he parades as the victor and he throws us the spoils? No. We get the spoils because we get him. And in him, all the spoils. That's the picture. God has given us a person. And all of this can only be true or only be rightly understood because of the biblical doctrine of union with Christ. Union with Christ. Now let's look at the verse, and I want to show you this how, this, how this comes out from the text, 1 Corinthians 1.30, and because of Him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. So we, we talked a little last Lord's Day about that opening phrase, because of Him or of Him. It's a preposition of source. And the picture is like spring water coming out of the ground. God here is the source and everything, everything that we see in this verse comes out of God, as it were, out of His very heart, flowing out of who God is. You are in Christ Jesus. The you here is plural. You always write into the Corinthians, but, but by default also all Christians. We would say around here, because of Him, y'all are in Christ Jesus. Y'all Christians, you're in Christ because of Him, you are, not were, not will be, but are, that is presently at this moment in this state of being or this state of existence known as in Christ Jesus. Now think about this phrase. In Christ. What does that mean? Let me, let me give you some other prepositional phrases that are paralleled to this linguistically. The liver is in the body. The car is in the garage. The cows are in the pasture. Or more closely related, 
Y'all are in this room. Y'all are in the building. That would be linguistically parallel to, because of him, you all are in Christ Jesus. Now you say, I, all of those other phrases I understand. Livers in the body, cars in the garage, cows in the pasture, we're in the building. All of that I get. Uh, there's Something is inside the, the confines of some other boundary or limitation. But then you're telling me that I as a human being, as a, 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 a person, am in another person. Christ is not just an idea, a notion. Christ is a person, a figure. True God and true man, two natures in one incomprehensible figure. And now I'm saying that what Paul says here is that the Christian is in that figure, that person. You say, it doesn't compute. And, and there is a sense in which we have to say that, that what's being said here is an incomprehensible mystery in the truest sense of the term mystery. There, there's a sense in which we, we explain it with biblical language, but there's also a sense where we stop and say, I can't go any further. We have these parallels, we have these metaphors, we have this language, and then we just must stop. But that's what it says. Because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. That is, Christ Jesus became... That if you hear that word became, or, or you might have was made to us, you hear sort of a, a temporal sort of flow in the thought. In other words, it's like there was a moment in time where Christ became wisdom to us, God's way of bringing about the long-expected purposes of God. And when was He made wisdom to us? Well, the answer we're going to see is, is actually very broad depending on your perspective. When did this happen? But basically, we could say just from the reading the verse, when you were put in Christ, Christ was made wisdom to you. Who put me in Christ? Go back to the beginning of the verse. God did. All of this comes out of God. This is God's work. God is the source. So flowing out of the heart of God, originating in God, there, a work has been done where the Christian and every Christian is put into Christ and when the Christian is put into Christ, Christ then becomes to us the, the, the actual application and manifestation of the very purposes of God from eternity in and for the Christian. That's what the verse says. Now let me summarize, if that was too long. God put the Christian in Christ, and being put in Christ, Christ is then made the way that God is going to fulfill the rest of His purposes in the life of that believer and for that believer. So what we saw last week, Christ, who was made unto us wisdom from God, that comes after this. This is the fruit of it all. Union, our being put in Christ. And this is our topic. This idea of being put in Christ, just those two words, in Christ, has historically been known under the, the theological category or title, Union with Christ. Say, somebody asks you, what is a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? Most basically, most essentially, to be a Christian means to be in Christ. And from that comes everything else. Forgiveness of sins, hope of glory in eternity, the application of the word in our lives, etc., etc., now, to open up this truth, I'm going to give sort of a, a, a high-altitude flyover of this doctrine. It'll be, it'll be a lot, so just rest. It'll be a lot, 
if, if hopefully this will spark your interest. Some of you remember back in 2017, we, had, we, we, we went through 12 sermons on this subject. And all I've done is taken all of the notes of all of those sermons and I've put them in my clipboard and I'm just going to walk through. I'm just kidding. I'm going to summarize that teaching if, it, if this sparks your interest, and I really hope that it does. You can go back and listen to that or I can point you to some, some other literature and things that will help you. Because union with Christ is the central truth of biblical salvation. Though you may understand many things... Until you get a grasp of this doctrine, you've not fully comprehended what we mean when we say something as simple as, as I got saved when I was 10 years old. Well, that sounds just it's a very cursory statement of what's happened to us. The fullness of it is God put me in Christ. And it even began before that moment in time. To pique your interest even further, let me read to you some quotes. John Owen, referring to union with Christ, says, This is the greatest of all graces, the first and principal grace, the cause of all other graces. A.W. Pink, this is the foundation of all spiritual blessings. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, This is the very essence of Christianity. What is a Christian? This is it. Union with Christ. Now, I tell you that, not so you say, Well, he, he must read all the, all the big names. But hopefully you'll hear me saying in those quotes... When the giants tell you that you're dealing with a giant, understand you're dealing with something big. It, when, when everybody who's ever written on this subject says, this is the thing, this is the bedrock of Christianity, this is the essence of salvation, we ought to hear them saying, it's a pretty big deal. Union with Christ is a big deal. So I want to open this up under three headings. Number one, the definition of our union with Christ. Number two, the nature of our union with Christ. And three, the history of our union with Christ. So number one, the definition of our union with Christ. The definition. The word union means to take two things and make them one. Some of you uh, have played the card game Uno. means one, right? The winner is the one who ends up with one card last, correct? Uno, one. Union is formed from the same Latin word, unus. It means one. A union is taking two things and making them one thing. So when we speak of union, we're speaking of two things being joined together into one. But the, the terminology here is that our union is with Christ. Union with Christ. Now Christ, we know, is the title given to the Son of God. Specifically as He is considered as the mediator between God and men. The Son of God in His role as Savior. So not necessarily ontologically the Son eternally, but, but Christologically or, or mediatorially the Son in His work as our Savior. So union with Christ, is, that's what our topic is. We, when we speak of union with Christ, we're talking about a joining together with Christ, the Son of God, as He is the Savior of men. Union with Christ refers to the joining together of creator and creature in an unbreakable oneness that in Scripture is comparable to that of a husband and a wife, a head and a body, vines and branches, but is actually even much deeper than all of those. Those are just metaphors from the created world that the Lord uses to try to help us to understand just how deep and 
binding this union is that we have with Christ. Union with Christ. We have been joined to Him into a oneness that lasts into eternity. Now it's important that we take note of how the Bible addresses this subject. The language that we most often see is in Christ. That's what you're looking for. When you see that phrase, in Christ, in Christ Jesus, usually that's, that's taking you down this road into the doctrine of union. For example, individuals are said to be in Christ. Romans 16, 9, greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. Philemon 1, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ. Romans 16, 7, Andronicus and Junia were in Christ before me. Well, when you read that, you know what he's saying. They, they were Christians before I was. To be a Christian is, is synonymous with in Christ, union with Christ. Individuals are said to be in Christ. Now, why is that important for us to understand? It, we need to know every individual Christian shares their own personal individual union with the Son of God. Our union with Christ is not mediated by the church. It's not mediated by our parents or our friends. It's our own personal union with the very Son of God. Every individual Christian shares in this union. But we also see that groups or multiple people are described as in Christ. Romans 8.1 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Philippians 1.1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Colossians 1.2, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. So it's not just individuals, groups. This union is personal. It is individual. But it also applies to every saint. And therefore, all of the saints share in this union with Christ. To be a Christian is to be in Christ. It's also, this is important because we have to understand that since we all share this union with Christ, that also means we are in union with one another. We're in union with one another because of our union with Him. But again, what does this mean? I'm using phrases. I'm using language. What does it mean to be in union with Christ? What does it mean to be joined to Christ? Or in the biblical language, to be in Christ, what does that mean? Another quote from Jonathan Edwards. He said, If any are disgusted at the word union as obscure and unintelligible, some of you are thinking, this is unintelligible. I don't understand. I can't follow he says, the word relation equally serves my purpose. Relation. In other words, we are discussing a believer's relation to Christ. Last week we asked, what is our relation to God? What is the Christian's relation to God? Christ. Well, what is the Christian's relation to Christ? You're in Him. You're in union with Him. You've been made one with Him. That's your relation to Him. So relation will work as well. We're talking about our relation to Christ. But when the Bible uses metaphors to describe this relation, we also see that there's a depth of meaning that goes far beyond just a superficial relation. You know, when it says, of, it refers to a vine and its branches, it doesn't mean a vine and the branches of another vine somewhere else. So that you would say, what is their relation? Well, they're in the same forest. They're on the same plot of land. No, it's, it's a vine with its own branches. That's the relation. When it talks about a head and its body parts, 
It doesn't, the picture is not my head and your body parts, right? The relation there would be, uh, well, we're in the same room together. Sometimes we, we pass one another locally. Or a husband and a wife. A husband and his own wife. A wife and her own husband. Not just a husband and a wife. The relation could be we pass each other in the, in the bread aisle at the grocery store. No, it's a husband and his own wife. That's the relation. It's deep. These metaphors take us deep beyond, far beyond something superficial. In these metaphors, in these relationships, there's a deeper association between the two parties than just location or knowledge. There's true fellowship. The biblical term is koinonia. Shared life between the parties. I know some of you get, get some of us get a little uh, annoyed at times at popular catchphrases in evangelicalism like doing life together. Okay, this is a little bit different. We're, we're, not, we're not talking about doing life. We're talking about sharing life as in the actual source of life itself is shared. That's what we're, when we say koinonia, that's what is meant. And that's why what Paul said earlier in this chapter is so very important because there he didn't say in Christ. He said, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You've been called into the koinonia of Christ. And that might be the most explicit and the most telling phrase in all of Scripture with regard to this doctrine of union. That word is koinonia. You've been called into the intimate bond through which a principle of life is shared or communicated with the Son of God. So it's a relation, but it's a deep, abiding, life-giving relation shared by two parties. That's why we use the word union, because that usually means a little bit more than relation. So how will we define union with Christ? The deep, abiding, life-giving relation that every Christian shares with the Son of God. That's how I would say it most succinctly. The deep, abiding, life-giving relation that every Christian shares with the Son of God. That's union with Christ. Now, heading number two. The nature of our union with Christ. The nature or the essence. What exactly is the essence of this union? Again, what do we mean when we say that we're joined to Christ or that we're in Christ? Again, the answer is not simple because it's not just one idea. The Bible doesn't just give us one picture and say this is it and explains everything. The, the biblical data presents our relation to Christ using a broad spectrum of metaphors and doctrines which give this union a, a full, multifaceted figure. It's, it's a broad thing. We could say maybe it's so simple and yet so mysterious that, that many different analogies have to be used to help us to comprehend it. But I'll give you four descriptors from Scripture to, de to describe this, the nature of our union. The first is that this union is vital. It's a vital union. And by that, I don't mean it's really, really important. It is. But what I mean is that it is a union through which life is communicated. It's vital. Life from Christ flows to the believer. We share in the life of Christ. You know the text well, John 15, verses 4 and 5. Christ Himself says, Abide in Me, and I in you. 
As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Now, if you've ever tried to take a branch off of a tree or off of a vine without cutting, you just try to break it and snap it off. Well, you know, that's very difficult because the, the fibers of the wood intertwine with one another. There's not a clean break. And that's the picture that he's painting. We share in the life of Christ. To be a Christian means that you've been brought from death to life. Regeneration is the creation of a new creature with spiritual life in the soul of a man. Well, what is the source of this life? Jesus Christ. Christ, Paul says in Colossians, is our life. When Christ, who is our life, appears... He is our life. It's all Him. Jesus the Nazarene, the crucified and risen Savior, is so united to His people that His very life is our life. The principle which animates Christ is the same principle which animates us, our souls, our, our, our spiritual Life. Charles Spurgeon says the life of the Christian is the life of Christ. We have no life apart from Him. And if we do have life, it's His life flowing in us. Shared life. We live because He lives. It's a vital union. How does that work? Well, secondly, concerning this, the nature of this union, we need to understand it is a spiritual union. A spiritual union. To say that our union with Christ is a spiritual union is to say that it is a union constituted by the Holy Spirit. Constituted by the Holy Spirit. John Murray, when we say that union with Christ is spiritual, we mean first of all that the bond of this union is the Holy Spirit Himself. You say, how so? How does that work? Well, the Holy Spirit indwells every believer. He's in us. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ Himself, as you know. And the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the life of every Christian soul. To paint the picture of our union with Christ by His Spirit, Thomas Boston used the picture of the church as the body with Christ as the head saying that it's, quote, even as if there were a man standing on earth whose head should reach the stars. Yet since one soul animates his head and his feet, notwithstanding the di distance betwixt them, they do still make but one body. It doesn't matter how tall you are. The same life that's in your head is the life that's in your feet. Where does that life come from? First point, from Christ. What is that life? It is the Holy Spirit of Christ. Spiritual union means that the Holy Spirit of God, who is the Spirit of Christ, is also the one who gives spiritual life to each of us. 1 Corinthians 6.17 says, But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So it's a spiritual union. Though we are on earth and our head is in heaven, we are one with him because the same Spirit who is his life is our life. Spiritual union. Thirdly, this union is also a federal union, which means it's one of covenant representation. 
covenant representation. We are united to Christ by covenant representation. He represents us before God. He stands in our place before God. In all of His actings as as our mediator, He acted for us. And His actions and His works are that they serve and are received by God as if they were ours because He did them in our place. Paul shows this federal relation in passages like 1 Corinthians 15. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. There's two representatives of the human race, Adam and Christ. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. In Adam, all who are in Adam die. All who are in Christ are made alive. Romans 5 says, Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. But then he says, The abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through another man, Jesus Christ. Adam failed in the garden and all fell in him. Or all in him fell. Christ prevailed in the garden and all in him prevailed. Why is that? It's because there's a federal union, a covenantal representative bond between Christ and us. And another way to think of this federal union is to think of the term or use the term legal. There's a legal representation that Christ bears before God in our place. He stands as our legal representative. It's a federal union. And then fourthly, this union is mystical. Mystical. And by mystical, I mean, or theologians mean, and me hanging on their coattails, I mean a mystery in the biblical sense of the term mystery. The Bible when it uses the term mystery, it means something very specific. It doesn't just mean, oh, we can't figure this out. No, the Bible means something very specific. In Scripture, a mystery is something that existed from eternity, was not revealed in prior generations fully, but then was made fully known in the incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. Christ comes and makes the mystery fully known. You can see that in in Romans 16. In Ephesians 5, Paul says, This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The union of the church with her bridegroom, the body and her head. The marriage bond is a picture of our union. It was a mystery. In prior, it it has existed from eternity. In prior ages, it wasn't fully revealed. But then Christ comes and all of a sudden, the fullness of it is seen. Or Colossians 1.27, this mystery, which is Christ in you by His Spirit, and thus we in Him. We're united to Him as our living head. That's the mystery. That's what, what was, was there. It was eternally true, and yet hidden in ages past, and then revealed in the coming of Christ. Mystical. So then, this union as to its nature is vital, spiritual, federal, and mystical. Because of this union, Christ's life flows to us. Christ's Spirit dwells in us. Christ's work is carried out for us. And the fullness of God's purpose is finally revealed and manifested in this. And nothing less than this 
union with Christ. The fullness of the mystery hidden for the ages in God that is revealed for the Christian, every individual and all Christians is nothing less than this, union with the very Son of God. That's the point. Number three, the history of our union with Christ. The history. Our text reads, And because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. So the saints are presently in union. You are in Christ. But it also seems like there was a time when the, those, the benefits of this union became ours. Who became to us or who was made to us. And so we might be tempted to ask, when did this union begin? Where did it start? When was Christ made wisdom to us? When did God's purposes for us begin or begin to unfold? When did Christ's work for us begin? When was Christ's work for us completed? How and when did we come to possess the benefits of Christ's work? Again, the answer is not simple because this doctrine is multifaceted. There isn't just one answer that addresses all these questions and that applies even to its history. When you read on this doctrine, you'll find out that theologians have broken up this doctrine not only according to its nature but according to the history of it using three primary stages. The first is what, what they would call imminent union, referring to eternity, the second is transient union, referring to history. And then a phrase that I have come up with, allocated union, which means coming into and applying to us. So let me unpack those just briefly. By imminent, we refer to this union as it existed in eternity in the mind of God. There is a sense, a sense in which this union, our union with Christ, every individual believer's union and oneness with the Son of God, there is a sense in which, in God's mind, it has never not existed. In a sense. There is a sense in which there has never, in the mind of God, been a Christ without His people. There's never been a redeemer without the redeemed. There's never been a groom without the bride in God's mind. They, they, they always go together. To, to say that he is a Christ is to assume that there are a people. To say that he's a prophet assumes that there's a people. To say that he's a priest assumes that there's a people. To say that he's a king assumes that there's a people. And so in the mind of God, there's a sense in which there has never been a Christ apart from union with his people. There is a sense in which you've never been contemplated in the mind of God in any other relation than this union with His own beloved Son. As we said last week, you exist because God wanted to save you. That's why He made you. That's why you exist. Created as a vessel of His mercy or a vessel of His wrath. But that begins in eternity in the mind of God. Ephesians 1.4 says that He, that is God, chose us in Him, that's the language of union, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. So God chose or elected His people 
in union with Christ. The election was unto a union. God's sovereign election was not impersonal. He didn't say, well, I think I will save some people. No, it was personal. He chose specific individuals who would be saved, but then on God's end, He chose them to be saved by being united to a person. Not just a general notion of rescue or deliverance, but to a person. It wasn't an election to some vague notion of salvation, but a specific and personal notion of being vitally, spiritually, federally joined to His own Son. In other words, God chose us to be united to His Son before the foundation of the world. And the choosing and the union have never been separate ideas. That's what the theologians call the imminent union. In the mind of God, there's a sense in which this has never not been the case. But this union also has to come into time. Or more specifically, the one to whom we were united in eternal election had to enter into time and perform certain works as our representative. We we must be saved. And so when we speak of transient union, we refer really to the actual incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of the man Christ Jesus. Transient means passing, fleeting, temporal. When we talk about the incarnation, life, death, resurrection, ascension of Christ, we are talking about actual, historical, in time, non-repeatable, transient events. On the timeline of history, they happened and they stopped happening. They were events in time, transient And in all these works, incarnation, life, death, resurrection, ascension, in these works, He was acting not for Himself. He didn't do it for Himself. The only reason that He he took the form of a servant in the womb of the virgin was because of us in union with a people. He did it as our representative, our stand-in or our substitute. Listen. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He took our nature. Why? Well, because we had our nature. He became a man because we're men. He assumed the nature of a man in the place of men whose natures were corrupt. In other words, the the saving representative work of Christ began when he was conceived in the womb of his mother, purifying and making holy the human nature which was corrupt from the fall. We know that our old self was crucified with Him. Well, the crucifixion was an end-time, historical, non-repeatable event. What, what Paul says is when He was crucified back then, it happened, then it wasn't happening anymore. When He was crucified, we were crucified. That's what he's saying. One has died for all. Therefore, all have died. So he wasn't just crucified, he died. Paul says because of this union, when he died, we died. It was like we were there dying in his death. Why? Because he was federally representing us in all of his works. 
Ephesians 2, 5 and 6. When we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is in union with Him. He was raised from the dead. And when He was raised, that's a, this is a, a moment in time event, there was a, an actual, historical, temporal, non-repeatable moment in time. If you, looked at, if you had a clock back then or a watch, you could say, yep, at such and such a time, the man Jesus' feet walked out of the tomb. He came out of the grave. You say, okay, he was in the grave and now he's out of the grave. He walked, he raised from the dead. When that happened, in the eyes of God, we came walking out with him. It was our resurrection. And the same with his ascension. Those there that stood on the hill with him and saw him, they could say, well, he's going up. There he goes. We were, it was about, about 2.12 in the afternoon, he took off. A moment in time, never to be repeated. But in his ascension, he ascends in union with us and is now seated in the heavenlies beside his Father. And because of this union, we are seated there in him. He represents us there. So you see, these are all actual, historical, end-time actions carried out by the Son of God as our mediator. Because we were chosen in Him, predestined to be saved, He had to come and carry out specific activities that were required for our salvation. Their nature's corrupt. Their lives are sinful. They've got sins to pay for. They deserve death, etc., etc., going down the line. Okay, He says, well, I'm going to come and do the work. And he comes and he performs these things not because he himself needed to perform them. He did them as our substitute. He stood for us as a legal representative. He was silent before Pilate because he stood in our place. If we stood before Pilate, we would have no answer to give. Guilty on all charges of every accusation that can be brought. He was perfectly innocent. Why didn't he speak up? Because he wasn't answering for himself. He was standing in our place, you see. All of this was for him or for us. As our federal head, his holy nature is the ground of our regeneration. His holy life was our life. His death was our death. His resurrection was our resurrection. His ascension was our ascension. He acted for us in this transient form of the union, or this, this, this transient stage. We're watching the man Christ Jesus live his life in time in our place. So it's to be considered from that perspective. But then we, got, we ask, well, how does all this get to us? How is it applied to us? How is it made ours? And that's why I've, I've come up with this term, allocated union. When money is allocated, it's distributed for a particular purpose. And it's to be given out and used by those for whom it was designated. Well, this work of Christ in history, planned from eternity worked out in the life of Christ, has to be distributed at some point to those for whom it was intended from eternity. When does this happen? When is that time when it comes to us? And the answer is when each individual believer is actually brought into a real spiritual union with Christ in their lifetime. When we come across the stage of history, or more specifically we would say, when we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. Puritan Thomas Cole says that regeneration is the implantation of the soul into Christ. Christ Himself takes hold of the sinner 
regenerates them by His Word and Spirit, puts His Spirit in them. Having been given His Spirit, we are then united to Him spiritually. The spiritual union has taken place. But what is the product of that? Faith. We respond in faith. So as He has grabbed onto us, we grab onto Him in faith, and that's what they would call the mutual union is sealed. He's grabbed us, we've grabbed Him, and now because of His Spirit, we are united actually in time and forever. In the moment of regeneration, all that Christ accomplished in His incarnation, life, death, and resurrection and ascension becomes ours. As if we had done it ourselves. John Ball said that after we're made one with Christ, He and all His benefits are truly and verily made ours. So this union is not just this simple one-time thing. It's, it's not a simple thing to explain. It's broad. It began in eternity in the mind of God. Then the Son of God comes into the world. Why? To carry out the prescriptions and the charge of His Father in the place that the Father had chosen and given to Him. All that the Father gives to me shall come to me. And then there has to come a time for every saint when the Spirit of Christ takes the work of Christ and applies it to them personally in regeneration and faith. And at that point, again, Lloyd-Jones says, we can claim that whatever has happened to Christ has happened to us. And what's the outcome? Last week we mentioned several other passages of Scripture that are like this one. Ultimately they summarize the extent and fullness of our salvation in Christ. Ultimately, the, the outcome of this is that every need of ours, beginning now and into eternity, is instantaneously met. In that instant, all of our needs, as John says, from His fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. And yes, throughout this life, we, we draw upon Him over time. But the fullness of what is in Christ is made ours in a moment. The only reason we are not drawing, it's not because things are being held back. It's because we're not going to receive. But He gives. In that moment, it's all ours. By this union, every individual saint receives the deed to Christ Himself and all that He has done. That's what God has done in our salvation. God has not simply chosen to save us by conveying some status to us or granting some blessings to us disassociated from Himself. No, He has saved us precisely by calling us into the fellowship of His Son. A vital, spiritual, federal, mystical union beginning in eternity, carried out in the life of Christ and applied to the believer at the moment of regeneration. And this was His plan all along. This is the way of God's bringing about the long-expected purposes of God. God is not merely to cho chosen to rescue and turn us on our way. Like you, you, you find an animal caught in a trap and you, wanna, you, you release them and they, they run quickly into the woods. That's not salvation. No, God comes to rescue us and to bring us to Himself in an eternal spiritual bond that actually includes the entire triune Godhead. Christ said, I and my Father will come and make our home in Him through the indwelling Holy Spirit. 
And even that, he hasn't done it by giving us some legal documentation that we can go to a manila folder somewhere and say, see, I've, I've been brought into union. I've got the documentation. No, he gives us his son. He gives us a person as the documentation. He seals it with his Holy Spirit. This is what he means when he says, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Our life is hid with Christ in God. Joined in an unbreakable and eternal union. Now, just a few applications of this briefly. What, what, what do we draw out of that other than just wonder, love, and praise? Well, the first one is that we need to see. This is what Paul's trying to show the Corinthians. We need to see that all of our needs have been met in the, in, in the infinite provision who is Christ Himself, Jesus Christ, so that we don't need to look anywhere else. We don't need to go anywhere else. This is salvation. It's union with Christ. You've got it all. You've got the deed to Christ. You've got the deed to heaven. All that He's accomplished is yours. All that He is is yours. You don't need to look at the culture. You don't need to look at the world. You don't need to go beyond Christ to find something else. You've got it all at the instant of regeneration. Everything that you'll need for all of eternity in Him. Now and for life and for eternity, we have Jesus Christ. There's no point in resorting to the wisdom and ways of the world. That's the first thing. The second way that we can use this is, with, is, is for self-examination. I began by asking, what is a Christian? Well, self-examination is this. You ask yourself, am I a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? Now, now I'm, this is not self-examination. Do I believe that my sins are forgiven? Do I believe that I should uh, go to certain places on, at certain times of the week? Do I believe that I should order my, my life according to Scripture? Uh, do I believe that, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and, and when I'm not doing very good, I'll, I'll try even harder, and since I'm trying really hard, I think I'm a Christian. No. To be a Christian is to be joined to Christ. Am I joined to Christ? Or do I just have a superficial association with Christian things? Is the ground of your comfort that you are believing enough, that you know enough, and so that if there are theological things that you, you're not real clear on. You say, I, I must not be a Christian. I, just, I don't understand very many things. Or do you say, no, my, the ground of my salvation is Christ. That person did those things, period. Now, the fruit will come from that. I'm not saying we ignore the fruit. But ultimately, the ground is Christ and Christ Himself. Not, are my actions enough? Listen, your actions will never be enough. Never. You'll never be sincere enough. You'll never know enough. You'll never know the Scriptures deeply enough. You'll never believe hard enough or full enough. You won't. The ground of our salvation is a person. Did He do it or did He not? He did. Then I lean on Him. Examine yourself. That's what Paul said, right? Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves or do not know this about yourselves, that Christ is in you. That's the language of union. Him and us and we in Him. Thirdly, this influences the way that we think about church relations. Because in the church, the believers, we all share this relation to Christ. We are all members of His body. And so the saints in the land are to be considered the excellent ones. Not because they, they wear cool shoes or have cool outfits or have great personalities. No, the saints in the land are the excellent ones because they belong to Christ. They're His. Your thinking about a single saint, single as in an individual, 
you're thinking about another Christian is taken personally by Christ. He hears every thought. And just like he said to Saul of Tarsus, why, why do you persecute me? He says to you, why, why do you think about me that way? The things that you say about another Christian in private, Christ from heaven says, why are you talking about me that way? Members of his body were joined to one another. When you talk about another Christian, you're talking about one of Christ's members unless you want to say they're not a Christian. That's a bold claim to make. You might not think very highly of another Christian, but Christ does. He bought him with his blood. He takes it seriously. I doubt very much that the things that we often think and say about other Christians, we would dare say if Christ were standing here, we wouldn't say them to his face. You know how I know that? Because we don't even say it to that person's face. We're not bold enough to them. I know you wouldn't say it to Christ. But that's, this is how he treats his people. It's important. But we're not only united to him, we're united to each other. So that one, when one suffers, all suffer. When one rejoices, all rejoice. Your personal holiness and growth affects the congregation. The holiness and growth of the congregation affects the individual. If you're being lazy spiritually, that's affecting the congregation. You might think no one knows it, and maybe nobody does, but God sees. He says, I can't bring them along any further because those few there, they're just lazy. It affects the congregation. Our hidden sins affect the congregation. God sees them all. Our modern view of Christianity that, that makes it out to be predominantly private and personal is, not, is neither historical nor biblical. It's all about me and me and me and my private thing and my private quiet place. Now, I'm not negating that. Again, I've already said every individual believer has their own union with Christ. But that, that doesn't negate the corporate aspect. It makes the corporate aspect. It gives it its substance. Because we all have our own individual union with Christ, we are all united to each other all the more, not less. So it affects how we relate to one another. And then lastly, this encourages faith. Ephesians 3.17 teaches us that Christ dwells in our hearts by His Spirit, and thus we have this union with Him through faith. Faith is the way that we close upon this union. He takes hold of us, and by faith we reach out and grab hold of Him, and the union is sealed. Not, because, not that faith is something we muster up in and of ourselves. It is a grace, a gift. But this, it closes this union with Christ. So listen, if you're not a Christian... You've examined yourself. You said, no, I've, I've, I've associated Christianity with all of these superficial things. I, I must not actually be a Christian. Okay, the Bible never says, well, then what you need to do right quick is get yourself into Christ. Jump in. No, the Bible says, repent of your sins and believe the gospel. Roll yourself onto this one who has done all the work in your place. Trust in him. Place your faith in him. Grab a hold of him. He's already done everything needed for salvation. All you have to do is grab Him. He's lived and He's died and He's rose from the dead. He's entered into heaven. There's nothing you can do to add to His work. You just rest yourself on Him and what He's done. If you are a Christian, well, that doesn't mean that your faith is over. You haven't, you haven't finished believing. No, you, you, we must go on in our faith. We must go further. The exercise and increase of faith is what draws out the life and power of Christ more and more. 
To, we receive grace upon grace flowing to us from Christ. But that flow, that valve is opened up with more and more growth in faith. The, the more we exercise faith, the fuller we pull the valve open so that grace can be poured out upon us. Now, weak faith is faith. Weak faith is faith. But very often, weak faith is only going to get little, little drops here and there. Like the, like the, 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 the weak, weak jaws of a young animal. Only getting drops of food from its mother. There is a fullness in Christ that is waiting to be poured out upon those who will fully and wholly depend on Him. If there are areas where you're holding back your dependence upon Christ, well, those are going to be areas where you're going to lack grace. That's why there's a struggle. That's why there's suffering, because you're holding back rather than giving all to Him. And you don't lose. You cannot lose by laying everything that is yours on Christ. We think I'm going to lose. Well, if I do that, if I go that far, I'll be considered this. I'll be thought of as this. And this might happen and this might happen. You don't lose. You can only win. And you'll never find a limit to what Christ is willing to take off of you and carry on Himself. You'll never find the end of it. He's already engaged to do it. He's already joined us to Himself. Think about how foolish it is that we grunt and groan and struggle carrying things only to find out when we let go that Christ was trying to carry it the entire time. And we just wouldn't let it go. We wouldn't give it. And we struggle. Oh, woe is me, right? I can't do it. I can't grow. I can't do this. I can't do that. Christ is saying, you just got to give it up. Let it go. Entrust yourself to Him more fully every day. We all, we all meet circumstances where we feel that in us. Well, I, I, I don't know if I really want to fully give in to the dictates of Christ and His Word and the leading of His Spirit here. And we struggle rather than just saying, it's yours, I follow, I submit. Lord willing, in the coming weeks we're going to unpack how union with Christ is the very substance of our salvation. But listen... None of that makes will amount to anything if you're not believing. So it encourages faith. For the unbeliever, cast yourself upon Christ. For the believer, cast yourself upon Christ. He is all of salvation. I'll read this morning from Luke's Gospel, the institution of the Lord's Supper, where we read in Luke twenty two nineteen, He took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so in the breaking of the bread, we are reminded of Christ's body, broken for us and given for us. But what have we just heard? When we see Christ's body broken for us, given for us. It's not merely meant to be taken as something He did in distinction from us. But in his, when His body was broken, it was as if our own bodies were broken. That the punishment for our sins has already been meted out. Brothers and sisters, we have a, a wonderful truth to cherish. I have sins. You have sins. It's a wonderful thing. To think the punishment has already been meted out. It's already done. 
at a moment in time in history. So let's turn our attention to that event. Christ crucified for us as the elements are passed and then we'll come to the table together.